Good morning. <clears throat> well, it's so good to be here. Uh, I say that for a couple of reasons, really. And and before I before I read the scripture, I just want to thank all you people that have been praying for me. So I've been having this trouble with coughing fits. I haven't gone, Kathy can attest to this, I haven't gone more than 10 minutes or so between between coughing. And I didn't want to do that up here because it's kind of distracting. So, so uh, your prayers have been answered. I've hardly coughed this morning through Sunday school. I, uh, it, it's just a blessing. So I just want you to know too, right, as if I'm telling you something you don't know, God answers prayers, right? People say there's power in prayer. Well, there's power in praying to God, right? God's the power. He's the one that hears. The fact that, that the, the prayers that you raised up for me to be able to get through this, the God of all creation heard and answered graciously right this isn't so you know this is not something that I could I could do I've been struggling with this for weeks this is not something I could do myself I couldn't just say okay for this t little time period I'm going to stop coughing it's really not a voluntary act so I praise God for for the answers to prayer and I praise God for the prayers too and I, I, I just want to encourage you in that right off the bat that enough right there is probably a sermon so thank you for coming <laughs> gonna read uh, Job <laughs> Job chapter 3 if you open your Bibles to Job chapter 3 and um, in your pew Bible it is about this far in I don't know the page number Job chapter 3 I'll be reading the whole page this far in, I'm going to say three-eighths maybe, three-eighths of the way through. And for my friends that use the metric system, I just, I don't know. So anyway, okay, now let's get serious because, you know, this is, these are the last laughs we're going to have for a while if you've read Job 3 before. So Job chapter 3. <clears throat> After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, 
come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who's in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. This is the word of the Lord. It's been argued by a number of commentators that this chapter of Job is the darkest chapter in the Bible. There are others that come to mind that rival it, but you have to admit Job is really hammering on the minor chord here. Two or three weeks ago, Kathy and I had the pleasure of taking Maris and Titus Howard home after church, and I was sharing with them that I was going to be preaching on this passage, and I explained to them what the passage was about. And, and the ever astute Maris says this, oh, great, I hope we don't have any visitors. <laughs> Which got me, yeah, boy, you're right. <laughs> so, so I suppose it's a good time actually right now to warn any visitors and all you regulars that, that you may not leave here skipping and whistling today. But it is where we are in Job. God's given us his word, all of it. So we're going to look at it. We're going to read it. We're going to think about it. I'm going to try to deliver a, a word that resonates with you all. So let's get at it. So I titled this message, But You Were Doing So Good. Because up until this point, we read in the first, second, first and second chapters in the prologue, up until this point, Job was doing all right, even though all this stuff happened to him. He was still, in a sense, he was still shining, even though he was in deep distress. Now, to give a quick review, some of you that haven't, that's been a while, so a quick review of where we are now. Remember that Job was noted to be the greatest of all the East, the greatest man in all the East. There was none like him. God himself said there was none like him on the earth. 
a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He was wealthy. He was f famous, really. He was wise. He was noted to be, you know, he, Job was the guy. Job was the man that you went to. He was, he was wealthy. He had a great family, 10 kids, seven sons, three daughters, thousands and thousands of livestock, an unbelievable amount of camels that I just can't even fathom. I can't even picture a herd of camels like that. Uh, and, and why would I, really? But so then, the adversary gets permission from God. And, and what's a heavenly wager? We get to kind of eavesdrop on a, on a heavenly council meeting. And the Satan's up there, and God says, so where where you been? This is paraphrase. And Satan says, going to and fro on the earth, you know, looking about his creation. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? To which if Job had known, he'd be like, leave me out of it, please. And following that, right, the Satan, the adversary, gets permission to attack all of Job's stuff, all his possessions, and even his children in quick, quick succession. His camels, his sheep, all of his livestock is gone. Marauders have taken it. His children, all of them gone. And this not just from people, right? There was a couple of events of of the Chaldeans and ramsacking things, but then there was also there was also like a hurricane or a tornado or whatever kind of thing it was, lightning bolts from the sky that 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 came and attacked and took everything Job had, took everything that he had physically. The worst part, of course, the ten children house comes in and crushes all of them as they were celebrating one of their birthdays one of their days they're having a joyful celebration and house collapses on them kills them all how do you how do you how do you deal with that here's how job dealt with it he said let's see even after the catastrophic day he he still fell and worshipped, fell on the ground and worshipped, fam famously saying, naked I came from my mo mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amazing that he can do that. But wait, we're not done. Then the Satan goes back in another heavenly council meeting, we get to hear him say, Say, yeah, well, sure, I mean, you know, that's his stuff. But if you touch his life, if you touch Job's life, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, I'll take that bat. Go ahead. Just spare his life, but go ahead. So painful sores terrible illness befalls Job, one that we'll never experience. I pray nobody ever experiences it. Head to toe, sores, painful sores, boils. Can't get any rest, can't, nothing. 
Job is hurting all the time. On top of, by the way, don't forget, just losing everything. <laughs> everything except his wife. Job still stands fast. Job still stands fast. In the midst of all that, he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And we're told in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You know, we read this and we think, do I have that kind of faith? Through all these tragic events, Job is steadfast and unwavering in his faith and trust in God. He was doing so good. At this point in the story, we might think the rest of the book will follow this pattern. Right? We, we read the prologue and all the stuff, and Job's coming out shining. I mean, we feel for the guy, for sure. But he's coming out strong in the Lord, strong in his faith. And if you don't know the book of Job, if this is as far as you get along, you're thinking that this is the pattern, that this is how life is going to be for Job, and it's how life should be for us. Whatever happens, Job's going to stand firm, loving God and taking whatever comes his way with a stoic faith, a great resignation to keep calm and carry on, to keep a stiff upper lip. Because as the hymn writer William Cowper says, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now enter his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Do not name your children. I'm just, just a suggestion. Who makes the trek, right? These three friends make the trek after they heard about these tragedies. And they sit with him in the ash heap. That's where we find Job now is sitting in an ash heap. The town dump is what this is, right? An expansive, it's a city. It's an expansive town dump. Ashes, all the other things you can imagine needing to discard in that dump. Job's sitting in the middle of the ash heap. In silence, his friends sit with him for seven days, for they saw that his suffering was very great. I want you to picture that, silence in the ash heap. What a perfect analogy for Job's life as it is then. Devastation surrounds him. Silence from his friends. Silence from his God. He has no answers. Hope has left the building. Desolation is what he sees all around him. And it's what he feels deep, deep in his soul. That's where we find Job here in chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. At this point, we need to note an important distinction. Back in the first chapter, in verse 11, the Satan says, Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Then again, in chapter 2, verse 5, same character, the adversary, the Satan says, But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And if that's not enough, by the way, his wife ends up playing the devil's advocate, telling her suffering husband, 
to curse God and die. What we just heard in that first line in chapter 3 is that Job cursed the day of his birth. Now this cannot mean that he cursed God by doing so. If it did mean that, there'd be no point in continuing for 39 more chapters as a Satan would have won the wager, right? If, that, if, if Job cursing the day of his birth meant Job cursed God, game over. Game over. The adversaries won the wager. But it cannot mean that. And that's an important thing to remember. That is such an important thing to remember, guys. No, what we have here in this chapter is like a, a poetic soliloquy. Right? You've read Shakespeare, some of you. Right? A soliloquy. It's just it's a man, it's a man talking. He's saying the quiet part out loud, I guess, is a good way to put it, right? He's saying the things that you think, the things that you think, but you keep inside. Job didn't. Job, Job let it out. That's what we see here is like a soliloquy. He's talking. He's not addressing. He's not shaking his fist right now at God. I'm not saying that doesn't come later. Spoiler alert. Right? But he's right now, he's just... What has happened? It's like uh, Bill and Will Kynes in, in their book, Wrestling with God. Or wrestle, yeah, Wrestling with, with Job, excuse me, is the name of the book. In their book, they describe this section as, picture this, the floodwaters. The floodwaters. The floodwaters of of when we heard Job saying, blessed be the name of the Lord, the Lord's given, the Lord's taken away, when we hear the floodwaters, now the floodwaters have, have receded to reveal the devastation that's underneath the water. That's where Job is now. Here we find a, I mean, even though, at first, even though he wasn't addressing God, God knows. God was aware. God's constantly eavesdropping on us, right? He knows, he knows our words. I say that in jest, but he does. He does know our thoughts. He knows our words before we speak them. He just got a chill when I said that. So... Job is just confused. He's confused to the nth degree. Imagine all the stuff that come upon him, right? Imagine how you confused you'd be because all of his prior understanding of God was that God is good and that God rewards those who diligently pursue him. God, God treats those people well. And Job has been treated very well. And now Job is not being treated well. And he can't understand it. It doesn't register. He's got no frame of reference for it. Soon we'll hear from Job's friends. And we'll see that it doesn't register with them either. Right? It's outside Job's. And it's outside their field. Their field of reference completely. Right? So don't forget that. As we move on in this book and we start 
reading what Job's friends are saying, I want you to think about this, right? If Eliphaz had been the one who was afflicted, as Job was, if he was righteous, right? Job, Job's frame of reference was the same, of a good God doing good things to good people, right? This was early on in the biblical narrative, mind you, right? This was around the time of Abraham, so the light was, the, the, the light of revelation that Job had, that Abraham had, was relatively dim compared to what we have now. We get the we get the, the blessing of having the whole book of Job to read. We, can, we know what happens in the end. We know how the story ends. And we have all of scripture that gives us more and more light on, on who God is and how he operates. Job didn't have that. His friends didn't have that. So for the ensuing 39 chapters now, we're treated to one of the all-time masterpieces of poetic literature. The prologue and epilogue are presented in prose. The prologue is presented as a concentrated description of who Job was and what happened to him. <clears throat> and the epilogue, right at the end, tells us how things fared for Job at the very end. But the 39 chapters, 39 plus chapters of poetry are are incredible, incredible. So we saw Job's initial victory of faith. And now we get the 39 chapters of intense, descriptive, emotional, sometimes horrifying poetry. People don't speak this way. Right? You and I, when we have conversations, we aren't speaking in verse, in rhyme. So I can't really picture Job's friends having these exact conversations. Excuse me. But you've heard of poetic license, right? Poetic license is the license given to a poet <laughs> to, to uh, describe things in a, in a vivid way, right? To, to after, after the dust settles, to look back and see how these things, how can I record these things to, to make it impact people the way that it impacted me at the time, right? This is what we see in, these, in this poetry. So just remember that these guys aren't, it's not the exact back and forth that we have, but it's laid out in a way that, that will, will give us full, full impact of of what was going on with these debates with his friends. Getting concentrated verses that use raw language that we have to wrestle with. It assaults our senses and it start, starts out with a bang here in chapter three. This is not to say that the debates between Job and his friends didn't happen, they most certainly did. But like even in Psalms, think of the poetry that you see in Psalms. They're describing real events, real things that happen, but it's after the fact, right? They're describing it after the fact, after they, they sit down and describe what happened in, in verse to give you the impact of what was going on. <clears throat> 
So where we are today in chapter 3, we see Job imagining that somehow the very day of his birth could just disappear. He wishes he'd never been born. Have you ever had that thought? Wish you'd never been born. There's some in here that have, maybe many. And if you're a parent, you've probably heard that from your children. I wish I'd never been born. They can't have that popsicle. <laughs> when God, God created our world, he, he brought order from chaos, light. He brought light into the dark void. And in verses 3 through 11, what we see is Job's desire to uncreate the day. You'll see like a reverse order of the creation, right? Bringing, instead, of, instead of bringing light from the darkness, Job wants to bring darkness from the light. He wants darkness to have victory over the light. And you see that replayed and replayed and replayed here, and it's there for a reason. Let gloom and deep, deep darkness claim it, he says. Let that day be darkness. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none. As he sits in the ash heap and looks out, he sees nothing but a barren, dead wasteland, void of any promise, void of anything of value, void of any hope. As if Job realizes that this initial curse for the day to be erased from history is a step too far. He scales it back ever so slightly in the following verses by saying this. He says in verses 11 through 19, he wishes that if the day can't disappear, well, that at least if I just had not survived birth, He's imagining, imagining that it would have been far better to go immediately to the place of the dead than ever living to see the light, the, this that only serves to illuminate his troubles. Again, this is, a, this is a good time to again remind you where Job is in the biblical timeline. He's in the time of the patriarchs. And they don't have a, a really clear picture of what the afterlife is or what we can expect we don't have as clear a picture as we'd like right but back then there was very little there was Sheol and uh, that's where Job wishes that he was so what we see in these in these verses in 11 through 19 is is similar to a faulty doctrine that is called soul sleep You've heard of this, some of you. Soul sleep. It's basically the view that when we die, we lie in a, in a sort of suspended animation, that we just go to sleep. We just cease for a little while to exist. You hear it from, from some various false religions will promote that. Um, and, you know, you've actually also heard it in a form at, at funerals, right? Funerals of, of people that, as far as you know, didn't know the Lord. 
they all die and go to a better place. They all are done suffering, right? There's no more suffering. At least they're not. At least they're not suffering anymore. And you, Christian, you wince a little internally because you know, you know, you know. So it seems that in Job's understanding, this sleep continues indefinitely. As we hear him say later in chapter 14, verse 12, So a man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. That's, that's a man with, that's a man that doesn't have a, a great understanding of the afterlife as we know it because we have the more complete revelation. But it's also the words of a man who's desperate, who's desperate. He just wants rest. He just wants relief. He, he's, he's suffering so strongly. We can never forget that, right? Can, can never forget it. He's, he's suffering. There's a, let's see. In, ch in chapter 6, one of my favorite pull-out verses of Job is in, chapter 6, 26, and it says, do you think that you can, and this is Job speaking, do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? I'm going to say it again. Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? I love that passage because it reminds me that, you know, when we're talking to, sometimes we're Job's friends. Sometimes we're, and not exactly, but we're coming around people that are suffering, that are hurting and suffering. And we sit with them silently and we want to support them. And then when they speak, like Job speak, <laughs> spoke, like Job spoke, what they say is not right. It's not right thinking about God. They're speaking wrong things. They're speaking things that assault our senses, and we feel like we've got to step in and say, D -d 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 -d. that's not how God is. Let me tell you how God is, you sufferer. Let me just reprove your words. Job says in that passage right there, he says, the speech of a despairing man is wind. It, he's just letting it out. He's just venting. That's what Job is doing. He's just, whew, I gotta, I've been silent. All this stuff has happened to me. I got to get this out. And he gets it out. And so then, spoiler again, his friends reprove him. They don't give him any latitude, right? So, friends, again, you know, point of application here. When you're comforting someone who's suffering, don't worry about correcting their faulty theology at the time. Just be quiet. Just come alongside them. Just love them. There'll be time. They'll come to their senses, right? They'll, they'll come around. We even see Job later in the book. 
having a much clearer understanding about the afterlife when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Right? So, anyway. So far, Job has desired things, even in his lowly state, that he knows are impossible. He knows that you can't erase the day from the calendar. That isn't going to happen. He knows that he's not going to be stillborn, and we know it too because, because um, Doc Brown and his DeLorean time machine are several millennia away in the future. Expected more response, but <laughs> it's like pause. No, I'm kidding. Seriously though, seriously, though, haven't we all wished we could turn the clock back to undo or unsay something or many things? I've got a few. I've got a few things. Oh, if I could just have not said that at that time to that person. If I had just not done this, boy, we all wish we had that time machine and we all know that it isn't possible. So now we see Job in verses 20 to 26. Job's lament turns from the past and the impossible to the present and the potentially possible. Job is in his very real and very painful now in verses 20 to 26. And this is even, in a sense, this is even more intense than what's preceded it as his greatest desire his deepest longing is death, is the grave. That's the, that's the one thing that Job is hoping for. That's the only thing that's holding out any hope for poor Job. Just death, just give me death. It's gut-wrenching to read it, isn't it? But we get it. We get it because... What this man's been through would be unbearable. And it's been now just not days. It's been weeks or months that this has gone on. He returns to the theme of light, which is another theme that you see in all this, these passages. And the whole, all the chapter three is light and darkness, light and darkness. That's not an accident, right? Job is, again, he's confused. He's inverted the goodness of light, right? And God said, let there be light. He's flipped that around to, but I say, let there be darkness because the light just illuminates my trouble. I don't, don't give, don't waste it on me. So it's hard to blame him for wanting death. But what does he want actually in death? What does Job want? He says this in here a few times too. Job wants rest. Job wants rest. That's what you want when you suffer. You just want some relief. You just want some rest. He asks in in verse 23, he says, Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Hedged in. 
If you know the book of Job, you recall back in the first chapter, that was an accusation that Satan had made to God. He said, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. So the Satan is saying, well, of course, you put a hedge around him. You've got this beautiful, beautiful hedge of roses around Job that I can't penetrate. You've protected him. You've given him all this great stuff. He's great children. You've given him all these things. You've hedged him in. But now Job, in, the, in an amazing juxtaposition, a flip, Job says, yeah, God has hedged me in. But it's not roses, it's thorns. I can't escape. I can't do anything to change my station. I can't do a single thing to change my situation. The thorn hedge is still letting in the light, but I don't even want the light. I just want it all to be darkness. It's as if the light mocks him. And he's prevented from deriving any joy, any joy from it. Now this is an important point. All through this monologue, there is an absence of any thought of Job taking his own life. Now that's important, and it's come to your mind. It's come to your mind as you read this, like, that there is a way, right? There is a way that Job could end his life himself. But even in this state, and this is key, Job understands that just as his children's lives and his wealth and his position and his health were given and taken by God, so his very life, so his very existence has been given by God and therefore can only rightly be taken by him. It's not Job's to take. It's not Job's to take. So Job's faith in God, even in this dark chapter, has not wavered. Even as we see Job perplexed and confused, even as we see him ugly cry, even as it seems that he's lost his grip, somehow he remains tethered to his God. Many of us here, many of us here have had some experience with tragedies, with personal loss, with loss of loved ones, loss of possessions, loss of position, loss of a marriage, a family breaking apart. You know, the list could go on. We could, I could go on. But it still wouldn't describe your unique, your unique story of suffering. Your story of pain, of hurt, of, of deep anguish, of mental, emotional, or physical suffering. And when those things came upon you, maybe at first... You handled those trials quite well. 
you were clinging to God. You were not having the answer yet, but you still had him, and you still had some hope. You were still trusting. God gave, and God took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you fell down, and you worshiped. But then, as the suffering, the pain, the grieving lingers, as your prayers seem to reach no further than the ceiling, the seeming indifference of God both surprises and angers you, and out it comes. Why? 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 We see Job say that like six times in this chapter. Why? Why, Lord? And as soon as the words come out, you almost duck, expecting to be taken out by a lightning bolt or for the ground to open up and swallow you because you shouldn't be talking that way to God. But it doesn't. It doesn't. In fact, if you'll allow it, you can almost sense a compassionate, loving father saying, let it out, child. Let it out. Dare we say that? Yeah. Yes, I say we have the example of Job, but he's not alone. We have the account of Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet sounded a lot like Job in, in chapter 20 of Jeremiah's prophecy. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Now, earlier in the service, Glenn read from Lamentations. And the author in that chapter, in that whole book, I mean, the book's called Lamentations, so, you know, you need to know what to expect when you start reading it. But he was wailing for the first 20-some verses there that he read. He was wailing about his condition. It was terrible. It was terrible. But then we get that beautiful morsel at the end. Well, it's in the middle. But we get that beautiful morsel that we love to cling on to, and it's hanging on the walls of our house. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Right, we pull that, we pull those verses out, and those are lovely verses and lovely and true verses. But we need to remember what preceded them, what comes after them. Two, there's, there's sometimes suffering in the midst of that. And it doesn't mean that God is not faithful, and it doesn't mean that his steadfast love doesn't endure, because it does. It does. Right now you might be thinking, but wait, didn't we just a few weeks ago hear a sermon about grumbling and complaining? It admonished us against that. We all, <laughs> we all, I don't know about we all, but me, I walked out of here like convicted, like, yeah, I grumble and complain way too much, way too much. And I do, by the way, and I'm not seeing any shocked faces out there right now. <clears throat> So what gives then? 
what get, what's Job doing here? Is he grumbling and complaining? And I say he's not grumbling and complaining. I'm saying this is a lament. This is, some, this is coming from somewhere much deeper down than a simple complaint. This is soul level cries of despair, of sincere anguish. We see it elsewhere in the Bible. Again, with the prophets, you'll see a lot of it. In the Psalms, you'll see a lot of it. And elsewhere. So this is how I've, I've come to understand the difference. It's that soul depth. It's that there's something way different about Job's cry from his condition than the Israelites' complaint to Moses and Aaron about not having water and wanting meat. They have so it's it's like the lament is directed to God Himself, right? This is Job. I know he's he's it's a soliloquy, but God is hearing it. It's not redirected to a human, to a person, right? Grumbling and complaining often is, right? Grumbling and complaining. When I complain, it's not, I'm not complaining to God. I'm not saying, God, why did you let this happen? I'm, I'm saying, why did you say that? Why did you cut me out? Why did you whatever, right? It's directed, it's misdirected. It's not recognizing that it's God that's over all these things. So our complaints and our grumbling are misdirected. Laments are soul deep and directed appropriately to the one, to the one, to the one who knows the whole situation. So it's like a theodicy, the lament. The theodicy being, simply put, it's a defense of God, right? In other words, I know that God is good. I know that what's happening to me is not good. God, help me to reconcile this. Help me to figure this out. We see so many tensions in the word of God that sometimes we cannot figure out, right? But we go to him. That's where we go. We go to God and look for the answer. Trying to understand how all this fits in the kingdom of God. And grumbling and complaining seem less than that. People are in my crosshairs. They're the source of my problem when I carp and complain. I've been inconvenienced. And I'm looking for someone to blame. Divine providence is brushed off as if impeding the advance of my personal kingdom. God's perfect will is barely an afterthought. That passage from Exodus 16 that Pastor Dave preached on uh, showed us clearly that our grumbling and, and complaining is ultimately against God himself. But by contrast, Job makes no pretense about where the source of his distress is. What was it that Job was ultimately longing for in this chapter? Rest. We see it in verse 13. For then I would have laid down 
laying down and been quiet, I would have slept and I would have been at rest. And then verse 17, there the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. And finally in verse 26, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Now the rest Job was searching for was the grave. The grave, a permanent relief from his suffering. The trials that were set upon Job are so intense that they're nearly incomparable to anyone else in the history of man. But I say nearly because there was one whose suffering surpassed even Job's. There was one that would come centuries later, one who would drink the full cup of God's wrath, one that would be forsaken, one that would take on himself the punishment for the sins of all who would believe the one who would give his life as a ransom for us, the one who would die and be raised to life three days later, Jesus Christ. And he's the one who said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, Jesus Christ is your perfect rest. Your situation doesn't have to match Job's level of, of loss and suffering to turn your world upside down. And when it gets turned upside down, know this from Job's example, that you can be honest with God. He could handle Job's lament. He could handle Jeremiah's lament. He could handle thousands and thousands and thousands of saints' laments since then. So don't, when you suffer, don't lay guilt on yourself for being honest with God on top of everything. Don't think that if I only had a stronger faith, if I only had a stronger faith, that's what I need. I need to just pull myself up by my bootstraps. No, you don't. You can't. Let it out, child. Talk to God honestly. He's right there for you. He's right there for you. Thank you.